Mark chapter 13, we're going to be in verses 14 through 23. If you're just joining us uh, today for the first time, or if um, you have not been with us last week, we are looking at three, uh, or chapter 13, Jesus' words about the last days. We split this into three sermons, and this is the second of a three-part series on Mark 13. So as we begin this morning, know that we had some context. This is going to be heavier uh, material and a little bit heavier teaching than uh, we, we typically dive into in the church. But God has in a, us in Mark 13. We are inviting the Holy Spirit to be teaching us through Jesus' words. And so let me begin in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and will never be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Let me pray and ask God to give us wisdom as we begin to study this text together. Father, we lay in front of you these words of Jesus. We believe that in your wisdom and plan and will, you have revealed to us things about the last days, the end times that you want us to know. And so we pray for eyes to see and perceive and hearts to understand and a desire to want to obey and follow you as we come to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I know you may be looking at the time, I'm looking at the time as well, and we will try our very best to uh, walk through this passage in a, uh, a timely way, but we also want to make sure that we do not cheapen God's word by simply trying to summarize uh, things that we need to know and understand. So let me begin the title for today, The Abomination of Desolation, The Great Tribulation, and preparing ourselves for the end. That's the, the main points of this text. We'll get into describing what some of these technical words mean. But let me begin by asking you a question. Has anybody ever seen doomsday preppers? Doomsday preppers. If you don't know what I'm talking about, is there a slide up here? Were you able to find a picture here, Des? Doomsday preppers. Uh, these are people 
who are preparing for catastrophic events. Doomsday preppers and by, uh, preppers are, are people preparing for the, the worst of times, the worst of events, uh, warfare, chemical warfare. These people do exist. There's, there's groups, populations. It's almost like this is a hobby, or maybe even more than a hobby for them. It's an obsession. But doomsday preppers exist. They are preparing for nuclear war. They are preparing for bombings. They are preparing for chemical warfare. They have, they have literally dug holes into the ground to prevent uh, or protect themselves from bombing. They have stocked themselves with all the food that they need, with the water, with guns for protection, with ammunition, everything they need to survive. And when we look at this unique community of doomsday preppers... There is something that we could learn from them. And that is that they have an eye on the future, recognizing that you need to plan ahead. The time to prepare is not in the middle of crisis. The time to prepare is to plan ahead. There's a lot that's unhealthy about the doomsday preppers, I would tell you firsthand, if you start to, to research this, you will find people who are so obsessed, they stop living normal life. They have basically become so obsessed with the end of time that they stop actually living life right here, right now. But there is one thing I just want to point us to, and that is the fact that healthy preparation is something that we all can take a lesson on, of life and living on, preparing ourselves for the end. The time to prepare, prepare, the time to prepare, the time to plan is now. Now with that in mind, I want to move on to thinking more about Mark 13. Because while the doomsday preppers present to us an example that we should not follow, they also present to us something that I think is helpful. Last week, I laid out the fact that we will be looking at Mark 13 and three specific sermons. This teaching of Jesus is the longest we have in Mark. It is one contained unit. And so as we break up this sermon or this sermon series into three messages, it was all one teaching of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the destruction of the temple, verses 1 to 13. Today, we'll be looking at the abomination of desolation in the Great Tribulation, verses 14 to 23. We have one sermon next week before our summer series that is going to take a look at the triumphant return of Jesus in power and glory. So let me share with you the outline for looking at verses 14 to 23 today. As I've thought and I've prayed and... and Ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom in how to preach this passage. We're going to look at three aspects of verses 14 to 23. The first is inspired words from Jesus. Inspired words from Jesus. And this is explanation and clarification of important details about the end times. The reason I say inspired, and if you look at the next uh, theme that we'll be looking at, our next uh, point in the outline, I have uninspired interpretation, and we followed by inspired application. 
If you notice, we're bookending. The sermon today is looking very specifically. We have inspired words from Jesus, verses 14 to 23. We have the inspired application from Jesus in verse 23. And in between, I want to provide what I call the uninspired interpretation. This is, as your pastor, as your shepherd, my best understanding of Jesus' teaching here. But I want to make clear, I am not authoritative. I am not the inspired word of God. That's why I give you, here's the inspired text, here's actually the inspired application. And to help us make sense of how this goes together, I will give you my prayerful Spirit, what I hope to be spirit-led interpretation to help you make sense. But I'm telling you, this is not to be taken in the same way as the Scriptures. Okay? So that is our outline. I would say there's very few times where I'll be standing here sharing the Word of God where I I will tell you, these are just my thoughts. Normally, I don't share my thoughts when I preach. I preach the text, and then I very specifically preach, here is the explanation, here is the application. We're going into deeper waters where it's helpful to you to give you my best understanding and interpretation. Because you will be also left wondering, what is the proper interpretation? So that is why we have that middle section. I say that carefully because I am not, my line of work, I don't stand up here and tell you my best thoughts. That's not why we have the gift of preaching and teaching in the church, is for Sam to share his wisdom about the world. The, the pastor, the preacher, is to share the very words of God. But when we go into the end times, there are things we don't know. There are gray areas, and so that's where I need you to understand. I've made it as clear as I can. Inspired word of God, inspired application, uninspired interpretation. Okay? By the way, that uninspired interpretation was spending all week in the scriptures. Uh, and the, the uninspired interpretation is all from the text. It's all from the scriptures. So I just want to make that clear. We're in a very unique passage. We're in a very unique series. And this type of message and sermon requires me to learn new skills. Uh, and for me, <laughs> requires me to go in the deep end with you. Let's go right on to the inspired words from Jesus. This is uh, Mark 14 through 18. I'll read it real quickly. It says, When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Let me stop there. Last week, Jesus' disciples, in verse 4, asked Jesus, they said, Tell us when these things will be. And what will the sign be when all these things will be accomplished? I need you to remember back and mark that. That was the question. I told you that was the interpretive key to understanding Mark chapter 13. When we pick up in verse 14, you need to see very clearly that Jesus is answering that question. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be. Then it says, let the reader understand. So the first thing we need to connect, verse 14, desolation of abomination, directly to last week, verses 5 through 13, very specifically, verse 4 was the question. Okay? I need you to make that connection. The second thing 
this term, abomination of desolation, this is a term you may be familiar with, you may not be familiar with, but we need to focus in on this phrase because it's a critical word in Jesus' teaching. The phrase abomination that causes desolation is an expression derived from the book of Daniel. Specifically, Daniel references the abomination or desolation three times. Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, Daniel 12.11. In our parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, very specifically, Matthew 24.15, in that gospel text, it is specifically, Jesus connects the abomination of desolation with the book of Daniel. If you look at Matthew 24.15, he actually connects these two. The word abomination, if that's unfamiliar to you, is something that is repulsive to God or his people. It's something that offends God. This is what an abomination means. It indicates that something is, there's going to be some kind of act, something that is going to be done that it will be offensive to God and his people. That's the idea of abomination. The second word, the desolation, suggests that because of this abomination, because of what has been done, the temple is left deserted or desolate. So the holy or pious or righteous worshipers are going to vacate the temple or to, to vacate the place where God is worshipped because of this abomination. That is abomination of desolation. Uh, let me quickly, I can just point you to Daniel 9.27. Daniel is also a book where we... We see Daniel inspired by God to write about the end times. In verse 927, here I'll just give you a taste, a glimpse of one of the passages from Daniel. And it says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Daniel seems very cryptic. When we look at Jesus, Jesus is very specifically using Daniel's language, and he's going to begin to put more detail to the end times. This phrase, let the reader understand, is just an author's note by Mark. Mark has, uh, has given editorial notes in 321 uh, and 330 in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. So these are comments where... In addition to Jesus' teaching, Mark will often add an editorial note. And so he says, let the reader understand. He references the abomination of desolation, and then he says, let the reader understand. What event does Mark desire us to understand? It seems really clear. He wants us to make a connection and application specifically to Daniel, to Daniel's mention of the abomination of desolation. And he wants the reader to be ready to understand, to see, and to apply those when the circumstances are right. Okay? Now, that was the inspired words of Jesus from 14 to 18. Just going to explain abomination of desolation. I won't go into all of the details. I'm looking at my time. I want to look at the inspired words of Jesus, part 2. This is verses 19 to 22. It says, For in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until, or excuse me, 
until now and never will be. I'll just stop there. I want to draw out from verses 19 to 22 three aspects of this text that I think are important. The first, the first aspect is again here is a reference to Daniel. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament or not familiar with the scriptures, then let me point this out. Daniel 12, 1. Jesus specifically makes a clear reference or allusion to another a specific scripture or text in Daniel. I'll read Daniel 12, 1. It says, At that time shall arise Michael. Michael is the archangel, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been uh, since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, and everyone whose name shall be uh, written... Excuse me. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Daniel is referencing some kind of end-time trial or tribulation. Jesus picks up on that same theme, and he references here. Did you notice in verse 19 how it mirrors Daniel 12, 1? It says, in those days, there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Second thing I want you to see in this passage is how unique this time is, this great tribulation. This great tribulation is a time that from the beginning of creation until when this happens, there has never been a time in human history where there has been so much suffering. The circumstances are so dire that unless God intervened to to curtail them or shorten them, no one would survive. So it's a situation, this great tribulation is depicting a time that has no parallel or comparison in all of human history. And apart from God's gracious intervention, literally no human would survive. It's hard for us to even fathom what the Bible is talking about. It's hard for us to even process. But the Old Testament has been pointing towards this over and over again, towards that day when God would, would visit his people and there would be judgment and there would be salvation. The Old Testament is constantly pointing us towards this. Daniel speaks about it, and now Jesus is picking up on what Daniel has said. He references the abomination of desolation. That's the sign that this is going to happen. And he references very much specifically, during these end times, we will not be able, our human comprehension, there, there's two things that, that our human brain just gets wrecked trying to comprehend. One is hell and how terrible hell actually is. And the judgment that God will bring upon all of those who do not believe in him, hell is a reality, it is eternal judgment. Our minds can't fully process that. And our minds can't fully process what we will begin to see during the end times. There will be suffering on earth like the world has never seen. The third thing I want you to see in this text, I didn't read it, but if we go back in verses 21, it says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform 
right here is what I want you to see. Signs and wonders to lead astray if possible. Peter talked about the fact that they'd seen miracles. The book of Acts is filled with miracles. When we see God working, we see that in Jesus' ministry, one of the the signs that Jesus represented God on earth was the fact that he had the power to heal, that he had the power over the demonic. These were were very clear signs that Jesus was who he said he was, that there was a new kingdom breaking in. Notice very clearly at the end that these false Christs and false prophets will perform signs and wonders. This is very uh, different then the passage above, when we, we read verses 5 through 13, it also said that there many will come saying, I am he. But it says, this is not the end. And by the way, they don't perform signs or miracles. So you can imagine if there were false prophets or people claiming to be a, a, uh, a Messiah and they perform wonders and signs and miracles, things that we have not seen, you can imagine so many people might believe Someone who performed miracles could only be from God. So this must be a Messiah. This must be a prophet. And Jesus is telling, I'm telling you ahead of time. This is going to happen so you're not confused, so you don't fall away, that you don't follow these false prophets and false Christ. Because even though there'll be signs and miracles, here's one thing. The, the uh, distinguishing factor of those who are sent by God, they will give glory to God and they will recognize the Christ. Always. This is, this is the one thing the demons don't do. So those are three things I simply want to draw out. So that was inspired words from Jesus. You can see I'm only touching the surface here, but I, I just wanted to share with you some very technical things about verses 14 to 18, 19 through 22. Now, I want to transition. That was the inspired text. I want to talk about my uninspired interpretation. I don't say that word to be funny. I told you I very specifically studied, prayed, searched the scriptures in order to be able to stand before you and share with you my best understanding of how we interpret this passage. But this will bring us into deeper waters. And so I humbly ask that God helps us understand. I humbly ask that God helps us know what we need to know to run the race. But take this part of the sermon differently than you do the inspired text and the inspired application. So here are three things that I want to point out that I believe help us interpret the passage. Number one, Jesus' teaching in all of Mark 13 is intentionally veiled. Intentionally veiled meaning is that we don't see through to the details on purpose. As I mentioned in my first sermon, the interpretation is not exactly clear because Jesus does not intend for us to know every detail. Remember what I told you last week. Jesus Jesus does not tell us what we want to know. He tells us what we need to know. This is the first point of interpretation. You need to understand Jesus is intentionally not revealing all of the details. Because he wants us to trust him to reveal the things that we need to know. The second thing of a point of interpretation is, and I've said this earlier, the abomination of desolation is the sign or indicator. The 
abomination of desolation is the key event when Jesus' disciples asked, when and what signs should we look for? In my understanding, this abomination of desolation that began with Daniel, and Jesus now picks up that language, and then he picks up the language of the end times, is the specific sign we're looking for. Number three, and this is where it is my interpretation. This fulfillment is best understood not to try to get into details, but to understand there is a, a both and. There is fulfillment in both the near future and the distant future. My best understanding of this passage is to take it like this. This passage speaks of the near future and the distant future. If we hold these things like this, as opposed to only saying verses 14 to 18 have to be only near future, and and verses 19 to 22, for example, have to be only distant future, I believe there's a both and. Now, when I say there is a both and, that Jesus' words need to be understood, recognizing and holding loosely, Jesus is speaking in a veiled way. There is a near future fulfillment. There is a distant future fulfillment. And we will understand these things more as these events are fulfilled. You say, that's really novel idea, Sam. Where would you get something like that? Well, let me tell you, there's precedent for this. There's precedent in Scripture. Let me give you just one. In fact, probably the passage you are most familiar with. When we talk about a near future fulfillment and a distant future fulfillment, whether you didn't know it or not. In the Gospel of Matthew, it connects the virgin birth of Jesus. This is Matthew 123, if you're interested in notes. With a prophecy from Isaiah 7 verse 14. That prophecy talks about a virgin who will give birth. But that prophecy actually had a near fulfillment. If you go back and you read Isaiah 7, that specific prophecy or those words were given to the prophet Isaiah and they referred to a specific situation that King Ahaz was facing. But you probably only know Isaiah chapter 7 because it had a much larger or greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ. When we talk about Jesus Christ, we always quote Isaiah 7, the virgin will give birth. But actually, that was the more full, distant fulfillment. And in fact, nobody at Isaiah's time had any understanding that what was said to the prophet Isaiah not only had a near fulfillment in the time of Ahaz, but it had a larger, more complete fulfillment in Jesus. How do we know this? Well, Matthew tells us. And so when you're looking at this passage, and we could go sideways all kinds of ways, folks. I could run down all kinds of trails, get really detailed with all kinds of interpretations. What I'm going to suggest to you is my best understanding of how to apply these passages is just like Isaiah 7, there is a near fulfillment and there is a distant fulfillment. Let me break down what I understand is near and what I understand is distant. Near fulfillment. This is the near future. When Jesus spoke his words in verses 5 through 13, if you're not familiar with that, you're going to have to go back and look at the other sermon, or you're going to have to read the text. And now these verses in 14 to 18, I understand this to be near fulfillment. Jesus is using verses 14 to 18 
to give instruction about the, uh, the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. Now, here's what's interesting. These, uh, this passage mentions the abomination of desolation, and this is what I understand is taking place. In much the same way that Isaiah prophesied of, of a near event that had a greater fulfillment in the future, I believe what's taking place here in verses 14 to 18 is the same thing. I believe that Jesus gave these words, and if you recognize, this was about 30 or 33 AD. We know the fall of the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem was 70 AD, so 40 years in the future. That was the near fulfillment. It was in the disciples' lifetime. And they did see that. And so then those warnings that you see where Jesus is saying, basically, if you're on the housetop, don't run in. Just flee to the mountains. Uh, if, uh, pray that it doesn't happen in the winter. And Jesus specifically even mentions regionally, he says, flee to the hills of Judea. There is a, a near future fulfillment, specifically even geographically. Jesus mentions the hills of Judea. I understand that to be fulfilled partially in the destruction of the temple and in the fall of Jerusalem. The thing is that it doesn't exhaust these words. I think it's a partial fulfillment. And so while we may see 14 to 18 fulfilling the fall of Jerusalem, there is also something greater. When we look at verses 14 to 18, what is the greater fulfillment? It says when you see the abomination of desolation, notice these words, standing where he ought not to be. That's a very strange way of saying this. In fact, if you know the Greek grammar, the grammar contradicts itself because it uses a male, or a, a male uh, article and it also uses a neuter article, which Mark knows not to contradict himself. Why would I point out this interesting hiccup in the Greek grammar? Because well, we got to believe that Mark is specifically pointing us to this abomination of desolation has something specifically to do. He includes a male, uh, a male says, we're standing where he ought not to be. So it's not just an event, it's a person. And the person, we have the benefit of knowing the rest of the New Testament. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 5. It says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to quickly be shaken in your mind or be alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be coming from us to the effect that the day the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. So now Paul is talking very specifically about that day. He's talking very specifically about the end times. And he's telling Thessalonians, that day will not come. You interested to see what he says next? He says, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And who? The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? How much does what Paul is saying look like what Jesus is saying? saying, hey, I'm telling you these things ahead of time. Here is the sign. The sign is this abomination of desolation. And now we know more specifically 
It specifically looks like it's not just an event, it's a person who triggers this event. This is what we often call the Antichrist. This is from 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-5. So that's how I understand 14 through 18. I think there's a near future fulfillment in the destruction of the temple. I think it has a line that points to something greater, and that is that there's going to be an abomination of desolation at the end of time that Thessalonians tells us is specifically going to be enacted by the Antichrist. Let me pull this train into the station. Distant future. What do I interpret as distant future? Verses 19 to 22. When it moves to verses 19 to 22, it almost screams at you and it says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as not has been from the very beginning of creation. When this passage, or when Jesus now talks about for in those days, it seems very clear he has stopped talking about the near future, and he's pointing to a distant future. That distant future is often associated with what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. That phrase, the day of the Lord, uh, or that day, that kind of language is in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. If you want all those references, I'll be glad to give you my notes. But when we talk about this phrase, the day of the Lord, or we, we, we transition in time to those days, it very specifically is talking about the, the final days, the day where the Lord will come and judge and save. And when we look at verses 19 to 22, I see a distant future that Jesus is pointing to. Maybe the, the, a, a way that I can best illustrate how I'm understanding Mark 13. Think of Daniel and the, the, the conversations about the abomination of desolation and how Daniel points to this end time, this tribulation, as being the seed. And that seed grows up, and during Jesus' time, Jesus provides more clarification, and Jesus is going to tell us more about what this seed will grow up into. If, if you participate in horticulture, one of the things that you know, there's flowers in the garden that bloom once, and there's flowers in the garden that will bloom all year until the fall comes and the cold weather comes and cuts off the growth. My understanding is that Daniel planted the seed of what would grow up. He plants the seed of the abomination of desolation and prophecy of the end times. And we see the first bloom of that in Jesus' time. But it wasn't the full and final bloom. Is that flower will bloom again. We don't know how many times there will be partial fulfillments of these end times. But we know there's only one Antichrist. We know there's only one man of lawlessness. And we know that when we see that, that is the end for sure. Along the way, it's just speculation. Every time we see famine and earthquakes, every time we see war, every time we see, like, in, uh, look at the internet, people getting these chips, right? And we think, that's the mark of the beast. It's finally come. In every generation, we will see signs that, tip, that will point us to, could this be the end time? My best guess for you, or, or, or guess, let me, let me retract that, because I'm not guessing. My best understanding from researching the scriptures is to hold a near and a distant future as the best interpretation that allows Jesus to say what he wants to, and allows us not to be preoccupied with trying to assign when and how will this be fulfilled? 
I'll close with this. The inspired application is this. We have already said it. Be on guard. I have told you all these things. If I told you, just like Jesus, hey, be ready. I've told you all of these things before. What would you assume I was doing? You would assume, without a doubt, I am preparing you for something that is about to happen that you should be prepared for. And let me bring it back. Full. We started with the preppers. We said there is one thing that we shouldn't do. The doomsday preppers are so preoccupied with the end that they stop living life now. They had become just absolutely, their their lives are overwhelmed with trying to predict and understand, is this the end times? So Jesus does not want us to be preoccupied with the future. Jesus does not want us to be trying to predict the future. We can't. Next week, we'll take a look. He says, nobody knows the hour of the day. But what does Jesus want us to do? Be prepared. It's that simple. Not to be preoccupied. We're not to try to predict. We're we're not to try. We are to be prepared. That is the end for this morning. Thank you for your patience. That was a tough passage to work through. This is a different kind of preaching. But we needed to walk through this together. Here's why. Jesus expected his disciples to hear his words and to prepare themselves. And if I'm telling you that this passage has a a near future and a distant future application, it applies to us as well. There was the near disciples, the 12 that Jesus was talking to, and he's talking to all of us disciples today. We are to prepare ourselves and be ready. There's one verse I'll just end with. This is in Acts 14, verse 22. In describing the missionary mission of Paul and Barnabas, it says, they went strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Followers of Jesus Christ, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Be prepared, be ready, be on your guard, and also know that God will give you his spirit, help you endure, help you run, give you boldness, and to endure every trial and tribulation. You will not run alone. Amen? May God give us wisdom to know and to apply his word. We won't end with a closing song. I'll just pray a benediction over you. Please stand this morning. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be on all of those who believe today and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.